spring of 2003, I received this letter in the mail from my friend, Brother Warren Brown, to say I was shocked when I received this letter would be an extreme understatement. I've I known Brother Brown for several years. Uh, I had preached in his church. I had fellowshiped with him. I'd been out to eat with him. I'd met his wife. I'd met his daughters. And uh, the letter goes like this. Dear friends, I'm, ri- I'm writing this letter to update my friends about my recent circumstances and to offer some explanation for my actions. On April, April the 17th, I was arrested for robbing a bank in Moore, Oklahoma. I'm grateful for my friends and feel that I owe them an explanation. How could Warren Brown, the pastor of a Baptist church, rob a bank? These events were reported nationally on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, and CNN. Because so many have shown concern for me, I must write this letter expressing my remorse and my regret. What I did was wrong, and in no way will I attempt to shift the blame for my actions. I and I alone take full responsibility for every decision and action I've made. In no way will I attempt to rationalize my wicked behavior. Over the last few months, I've pondered the hurt, loss, and trauma that I've caused to so many. My behavior is shocking to me and all that know me. If you'd asked me years ago, is there any possibility you would ever rob a bank, I would have told you that is impossible. I thought I was incapable of such reprehensible behavior. Even now, after the event has transpired, I still cannot imagine how I could have done such a thing. Everyone who knows me will tell you that I'm not a violent person. I, at the present time, see no relief from the remorse and grief that I feel for those I've harmed. And as a result, I have resolved to study my behavior, attempting to discover the root cause, and have determined to sever any possible reason to ever behave in such a way ever again. And then he explains which I believe is a very good explanation that I will show, that I will share with you later. He explains what had happened in his thinking processes that led him to the point that he could actually rob not one bank, he robbed five banks. And the way they caught him was the FBI actually, somebody had reported They'd seen one of the cameras, thought it might have been him, and the FBI had been tailing him. And he told me, Brother Davis, after I robbed the fifth bank and walked outside, he said, I really, truly had determined I was never going to rob another bank. He said, the guilt was eating me alive. And he said, right as I reached for my car door, an FBI agent was standing right next to me with a pistol pointed right at my head saying, drop eagle to the pavement now. He said, I threw up my hands and I said, sir, I am not armed. And the FBI agent said, I am armed. And I said, drop to the pavement now. His crime spree was over. And uh, I will show you later what he said because I think it is very significant. Years ago, I heard a profound statement that I have thought on many times from then to now. And I want to use that statement as a key theme for this message. Here was the statement. In fact, read it with me. Would you please, out loud, please, everybody. One of the key decisions young people make in their teen years is whether they will be a giver or a taker. So allow me to ask you personally here tonight, everybody here tonight, are you a giver or a taker? The Apostle Paul was about to leave the church at Ephesus, church, Ephesus, a church that he had birthed and built, people that he loved. And as he was leaving, he said to them, I have showed you all things, 
how that so laboring you ought to support the wing and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, read the yellow words please, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now it's an interesting thought here. If you go back through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look for where Jesus said those words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You can't find it anywhere in the Gospels. But apparently, the early church knew that Jesus had said that phrase over and over and over again. That is the tense of the Greek verb, how he said. Jesus said it over and over and over again. So it was circulating through the early church. God didn't want us to miss out on it. And so he had the apostle Paul quote it there in Acts chapter 20 verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I tried to think, where and when might Jesus have said those words. We don't really know, but uh, 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 just tolerate me for just a minute. Maybe as Jesus was about to feed the 5,000 people with the five loaves and the two fishes, and there was a little boy that had given up his five loaves and his two fishes. Maybe at that point, after all that tremendous crowd, over 5,000 men and uh, plus the women and the children, who knows how many people were really there that day, thousands and thousands of people. And maybe after the whole crowd had gotten fed, maybe at that point this little boy with his empty hands who had given up his five loaves and two fishes, well, I say they were empty. He still had plenty to eat as well. He had uh, everything he wanted and then some. But can you imagine how big his eyes must have been? And can you imagine maybe at that point Jesus turned to his disciples, turned and pointed at that little boy and said, fellas, don't ever forget, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Maybe after Jesus had just given healing to hundreds of people because there were times we're told exactly who Jesus healed, but there were times Jesus just healed lots of people. Everybody that came to him, maybe at that point in time, at some point, uh, all these people are so happy and rejoicing and maybe Jesus turned to his disciples, pointed to all those people who had been healed and said, fellows, don't ever forget, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In Philippians chapter 1, the apostle Paul said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart, and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And then in chapter 2, he said, But I'm trust, I'm, I'm hoping in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be, good, be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ, but ye know the proof of him, Timothy, that is a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. Now I'm asking the question, are you a giver or a taker? And I want to dive right into my message by pointing out to you, number one, that givers care for others and takers have to be taken care of by others. Notice the text. Paul said, I can trust Timothy. Timothy has the right mindset. He cares for others. All around us are people who care for others. 
May I be honest with you, I was a pastor for 36 and a half years, and those are the people that you ask to teach. Those are the people who witness to others. Those are the people who prepare the meals for others. Those are the people who stay around to fellowship with others. Those are the people who come to church when they feel like it, come to church when they don't feel like it. Now, may I suggest you don't ever walk into the church with the mindset, I come to get. Don't ever walk into church with a mindset, I see some folks like this every once in a while, Pastor, and uh, they come into church and they sit down and they look up at you like, I dare you to hold my attention. I dare you to say anything's gonna, that I'm going to be interested in. You know, I, I sort of had to be here tonight, but that doesn't mean I have to take part. No, no. You know, preacher, some people come in and I, I don't know about you, I don't mind it when somebody comes into church and goes to sleep. I really don't. It's when they try to go to sleep. That's what gets me. I've, I've been in church before and, and sat down and I hadn't had a lot of sleep and I'm trying to pay attention and a few seconds later, suddenly I realize, I, man, I, I, you know, anybody can go to sleep. It's those who settle in and do this. It's like they're going to bed at night. Got to get the pillow on the pew just right. Got to get the pew. Yeah, there it is right there. Now, don't move. Now, preacher, please don't do anything to what. No, listen, folks, listen. Here's what you're supposed to do. Hand me your Bible, would you please? Here's what you do. You come to church, and the preacher stands up to preach, and you lean slightly forward with your Bible open. And if your preacher's all right with you taking notes, then you got a pencil and piece of paper. And it's like, yes, preacher, give me something. I'm ready. I'm hungry. My cup is empty. See my empty cup? Preacher, I'm expecting to get it filled. I know I'm going to get it filled because God's going to give you something for me today and I can't wait. Now, what are you being then? You're being a giver instead of a taker. You're somebody who's encouraging the preachers. Every once in a while, you say, hey, man. Every once in a while, you say, yes. Every once in a while, you say, ouch. That hurt. Thanks, preacher. I needed that. And uh, you are encouraging the preacher. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you honestly, there are, when I was a pastor, there were certain places in the auditorium I just didn't look. <laughs> Too discouraging. You know? I mean, they're going to they're gonna try to catch your eye and they're going to frown at you. I just don't look. It's their problem. But I knew there were spots I could look. And I would be encouraged because there was a giver in the auditorium. Can I tell you something? Givers get more out of church than takers do. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And as you give, God gives back to you. It's interesting, the first occurrence of the word give in the Bible. Did you ever think about it? Genesis chapter 1. God created the sun, the moon, the stars, and said, let them be for lights in the firmament to give light upon the earth, verse 17, to give light upon the earth. And then I remembered something. Jesus said, ye are ye the light of the world. You and I are supposed to be giving out light. 
How many Christians here tonight? How many are saved here tonight? Let me see your hands. You are supposed to be giving light out everywhere you go. This is a dark, dark, sin-cursed world. And the, there should be a light about your countenance and a light in your eyes and a lilt in your voice and a lightness in your step that says, Jesus has been in, is inside of me. And there should be, I love the light in this place. I'm not talking about that light. Man, you folks start singing and this place lights up. And you know it's not that way everywhere. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't, don't, ever, don't ever get sideways some way with the church, with the pastor. And all at once you're, you're losing out because you're upset about some little thing. You're the light of uh, the world. What is the first occurrence of the word take in the Bible? Man sin and God sin. The man's become as one of us to know good and evil and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. I can't live him like this. God said I got to put him out of the garden because he has become a taker now. I can't trust him in the garden. You can continue to trace this throughout the scripture if you study the story of Abraham and Lot and Abram said to Lot. Now notice who's the giver and who's the taker here. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between me and me and my herdmen, thy brother. We, we be brethren. He said, the whole land's before us. You take whatever you want. He's the giver. Abram's the giver. Lot is the taker. And Lot winds up taking those well-watered fields over near Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, read it please. Givers seek peace. Takers stir up problems. You can almost always tell the givers and the takers because the givers are doing their best to have peace. And what Lot didn't realize, listen to me, the, the takers really need an Uncle Abraham around to keep them straight. What he should have done was he should have gone to Uncle Abraham and said, Uncle Abraham, you know what? Our men can't get along. And so here's what I'm going to do. I got to stay with you because I'm going to get in trouble if I don't stay with you. So whatever we need to do to work this out, you tell me what to do and, and we'll work it out. And you're the man in charge now and it's going to be fine with me. And what happened was Abraham let Lot have whatever he wanted and the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly and eventually the men of Sodom would surround Lot's house and you know the rest of the story. Now the problem with takers is that they take until they take away the very relationship that is keeping them alive. That is what Lot did. Takers wind up lonely and don't understand why they are lonely. I've noticed sometimes that before I call somebody, I will think the thought of giver or a taker. Now we got these fancy phones now and as soon as they start ringing, it comes up with somebody's name. Preacher, you ever do this? The phone rings and you think, be honest now. <laughs> and you think to yourself, oh no. You know why you think that? It's a taker. They want to waste your time. 
And it's not that you don't want to spend time with everybody. It's just that there's no way a pastor can spend all the time that he wants to with everybody in a church this size. He's got a wife and children who are his top priority. He's got other things he's got to do. And he can't just, he can't just fellowship on the phone for 30 minutes with somebody, with the same person day after day after day after day. But Davis, how do you know that? Because I had some wanted to do that. And the phone would ring. And if I didn't answer it, they'd get upset. And five minutes later, they'd call back. And 30 minutes later, they'd call again. 30 minutes later, they'd call again. 30 minutes later, they'd call again. And when I would finally answer the phone, why didn't you answer the phone, Pastor Davis? Well, I just had a lot to do today. I really did. But every once in a while, your caller ID comes up and you'll say, oh, glory to God. Can't wait to talk to them. And then you answer the phone and you talk to them. Now the question, <coughs> excuse me, the question comes up. Should we give to the takers? And the answer is yes. Give to every man that asketh of thee. Also, don't ever forget that you cannot outgive God. God always gives to you more than you give to him and to others. Given, it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaking of the running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet or give out, that God will use that measure to give to you. Now, you know, before I forget it, let me throw this in right here. Because I can literally, I have before, I can preach this whole message and never say one word about tithes and offerings. Because the matter of being a giver or a taker is a whole lot bigger than what you do with the money that's in your back pocket. The reason some people get upset when the pastor mentions tithing, giving, faith promise missions, building fund, whatever it might be, whatever the need is at the time, the reason some people get upset is because they're takers instead of givers. Givers love it. They, they may not always be able to give a lot, but they love it. I remember one night on a Wednesday night at our church about 30 years ago, we, were, we took up the regular Wednesday night offering and I, I, I don't prefer that folks do it this way, but this is what happened that night. It came out all right. Right as they finished the offering, so I lifted their hand. But Davis, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about such-and-such such a need? No, I didn't. And right there, we decided we'd just take another offering. So we did. At the end of the service, somebody did the same thing again. Now, don't y'all do that, all right? Your pastor probably prefer you didn't do that, but... You can talk to him sometime. And we wound up one night taking three love offerings in one night. And you know who loves that? Givers love that. Even if they don't have a lot of money to give, they're thrilled to be able to give whatever they can give. Number two, train children to be givers instead of takers. Do you know why? Because untrained, rebellious children tend to be takers. Here's one of my favorite pictures. I've got over 20,000 Bible pictures. I collect them everywhere I can find them. But this is one of my favorite pictures. I want you to look at that picture and see if anybody can tell me who the man is standing next to the Apostle Paul. He's a man in the Bible whose name is almost never used. It's not a familiar name. It's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Don't look. 
All right? But it, here's what it says about this man. Notice that Paul is under arrest. Notice there's a chain on his arm. Notice there's a soldier standing there guarding. And then the verse says that this man, Paul said about him, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. He was not ashamed of the fact that I had been arrested. Anybody know who it was? Who is it? Name Name who it is. Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus oft refreshed me. Anybody who knew it? I had a couple here tonight who knew who it was. Onesiphorus, can I ask you, are you a giver or a taker? What was happening? Paul had been under arrest. And Onesiphorus said, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to go down and see him. And he went. And as he walked out, somebody said, you been to see that jailbird? And he, Onesiphorus said, hey, Paul's my friend. He's in jail for preaching the gospel, for doing right. It's all right. I'm going to see him. Now, when I say train, to be, train children to be givers instead of takers, I'm saying don't let children become self-centered. People who give children, parents who give children everything they want often create a monster in the process. Somebody said a Christian wrapped up in himself is an ugly package. The self-centered life is marked by constant conflict. Give me. I want that. That's mine, not yours. Stop that. Mama. Sound like anybody's house here? Mark 10, 45 says, The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Did you ever hear of the toddler property laws? If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a week ago, it's mine today. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, well, crying out loud, it is mine. If I think it's mine or it's near me, it's mine. If you're playing with something and put it down, it automatically becomes mine. You ought to know that. If it's broken or it's broccoli, then it's yours. And somebody took off on that with the top 10 dad property laws. If it's mine, the kids will want it. If it's mine, the kids will ask to borrow it. If it's mine, the kids are going to lose it. If it's mine, the kids will leave it out in the rain or the snow. If it's mine and the kids haven't broken it, it's not because they're not going to. If it's mine, my wife's probably going to ask me to move it or donate it to Goodwill. (coughs) If it's mine and I like it, It won't fit or it'll be out of style. Boy, I've had that a lot. If at dinner time it's been burned, has fallen on the floor, or licked by the dog, sure to be mine. And if one of the kids throws up in the middle of the night, that is really mine. (laughs) I have a letter here that I received 11 years ago from a fellow who 30 years ago was a teenager in our church. I was his pastor, he was a teenager. He went the wrong direction. He wound up in prison. And um, he wrote me from prison and he said, one of the things I've come to realize how, is how selfish I've been throughout my life. Everything was done for me and I didn't care to even consider the effects on others. 
Even after I was arrested, I kept thinking about me. Then when I began to seek the Lord, I prayed that he would do whatever it took to make me what he would have me to be. I kept remembering the songs that we used to sing at church. The will of God, nothing more, nothing, nothing less, always, anywhere, at any cost. Eventually, God softened me up and I stopped worrying so much about me. Now when I pray, I pray for others. There is... Once, once a child grows up as a taker, the problem is he or she tends to stay that way. Very difficult for a mate to get the taker out of a taker if the parents don't get it out ahead of time. So what happens in our day, you'll have, watch me here, you'll have two, in fact, let me make a, let me make a statement right here. Listen to this statement. There has never been Two givers right with God in a divorce court. Let it soak in for a minute. It's never ever happened. Never will happen. It's never happened. Two givers right with God have never been in a divorce court. Never been, never will be. So, two givers get married. And after they get married, it's like there's this marriage box. Because you have needs. And you come to marriage and occasionally you need to get something out of this marriage box. And so the main thing, either person in a marriage must be thinking, this is the reason this message is in the marriage collection, that is you've got to be thinking about putting into the marriage box at all times so he puts in love and she puts in reverence as I preached yesterday afternoon. He puts in cherishing, she puts in submission. He puts in attentiveness and she puts in attention. He puts in a flower or a rose or a card and she puts in a home-cooked barbecue meal. He puts in a date night and she puts in a clean house. He puts in romance and she puts in exciting intimacy he puts in detailed conversations and she puts in a neck and back and shoulder rub he puts in cards and gifts and she puts in little notes of encouragement and he puts in kindness and she puts in kisses I'm preaching now, look at this marriage box. It is full and running over. Do you see it? It's just full and running over. So either one of them, anytime they need something out of the marriage box, they can come. And there's something in the marriage box they can take out whatever they need. Now watch. Two givers get married. But then occasionally a giver and a taker will get married. And the giver puts in and the taker takes out. And the giver puts in and the taker takes out. And the Are y'all seeing it? And the giver puts in and the taker takes out. And the giver puts in, the taker takes out. The giver puts in, the taker takes out. And one day the giver needs something too. And they come. And they try to get something out of the marriage box. And the marriage box is dry and empty. And their needs aren't met and the marriage grows cold and distant. Now, 
You know what's happening in our day? Just last week, uh, if you're on my email newsletter, I sent out an email newsletter last week where I explained, I gave away a message, the three tests of true love, and then, and we do this every month, and then I answer a key question. You can go to our website and you can sign up to receive the email newsletter if you want to. We do something like this every single month. And then I answered the question, why is it that if a couple lives together before marriage that it tends to destroy their marriage later on? Did you know that really is true? And it's a very critical thought because over half of couples in our day are living together before they get married. And what happens is they live together before they get married and they'll sometimes do all right. Sometimes they'll do all right for several years that way and then they get married and you know what tends to happen? About three months after they get married, they're having problems. And it's very common within six to 12 months after marriage for them to be getting a divorce. And people don't understand the dynamics of what is happening. Here's the dynamics. Here's the description for you of what is happening. The main reason two people start living together without getting married is because there's a lot of taking going on from both sides, especially the guy's side. And so... After a while, they want to go ahead and get married. And so they get married. And something happens the very day they get married. The very day they get married, suddenly, whether they really want it to happen or not, suddenly all the heavy responsibilities, and there are a bunch of heavy responsibilities that come the very day you become a husband. And it's virtually impossible for a wife, it is like it's built into the creation itself, for a wife to expect that husband to meet certain responsibilities and vice versa. There is a big load of responsibility that comes on to a wife the very day she becomes a wife. And it's like it is built in for the husband to expect his wife to meet those responsibilities of being a wife, even if they say they don't expect it. Even if they say, oh, it's all right, it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. It's like it's built in by the Creator Himself for you to expect these needs to be met. Now, God, the Creator, who also created marriage, by the way, the only way, they just tried to pass a gay marriage bill in Illinois. And did you know, it took the power of creation itself to create marriage. Do you know the only way any legislature anywhere in this world could really do anything different with marriage than a man and woman was if they had the power to speak, speak their own earth into existence. If they don't have that power, they don't have the power to overrule God. And it's sad when they try, and it's a mess when they try. But anyway, now, here's this couple, and 
They're expecting everything just to be fine. So they get married and they've been living together. And there's all this heavy load of responsibility that comes on them, each of them, the day they get married. Now, God knew all that. So God says to every couple, let me tell you, I've got some phenomenal, unbelievable, knock it out of the ballpark privileges for every couple the day and the week and the month they get married. And those privileges are so phenomenal that the responsibilities over here, you won't even notice them because the privileges are so great. Now, what happens if you take all the privileges before marriage and then you decide you're going to get married and all the responsibilities come that first few days of marriage, the responsibilities come crashing in like a weight, throwing this whole thing out of kelter, making this whole marriage relationship go haywire, and within a few weeks, they're ready to divorce. In fact, that's the reason, listen to me, the best thing to do in any type of relationship before marriage is to take as few of the privileges as possible and then the day you get married, all of the privileges are so one. If you, listen to me young people, it's better off if you never touch. That first special touch can be right at the marriage altar. Don't tell me it don't work. I've, I've, I've had lots of young people now tell me, Brother Davis, I've had them, I had it just in the last two or three years. I had some couples who really did things the right way. Neither, I'm thinking of two couples right now. Neither one, uh, neither the guy or the lady, in, if either one of these couples had ever had another boyfriend, ever had another girlfriend, ever had any kind of date of any kind at all, never touched anybody, never kissed anybody, one emotional relationship leading up to marriage, held hands and kissed at the marriage altar for the very first time. Both couples came to me and said, Brother Davis, you are right. There is nothing like that. So what if, watch me now, what if you've got a couple, there is a solution here. What if you've got a couple who are living together before they get married and they want to get married? Well, if they really want to build a good marriage, number one, they need twice the counseling anybody else needs. I recommend they watch my entire marriage collection, that the guy watches the entire men's collection, the, girl, the lady watches the entire ladies' collection, and they should completely separate and not touch at all for a minimum of 30 days, preferably six to eight weeks, and every day that passes creates a fresh newness for the marriage itself so that they can truly then build a solid marriage and both can focus on being givers instead of takers in the relationship. Now, by the way, you choose, look at that screen in front of you, would you please? 
You can choose the path of being a giver or a taker just like you choose any other path in life. If I'm talking to somebody tonight and while I'm preaching you recognize I am on the path of being a taker, then you ought to come to the altar tonight and say, God, I want off this path. It's the wrong path to be on. I want to get on the path and become a giver. You remember Ruth and Naomi? And uh, all that happened there, you remember how Naomi and Limelech and the sons had left and, and then Ruth and Naomi wound up coming back and uh, Naomi was bitter and Ruth chose to be grateful and uh, she went out there and she is a giver and uh, she went to work, she met Mr. Boaz and God led them together and it's because they were both givers. Now, Abraham, I'm going to skip over a little bit here. Abraham refused to be a taker even when the opportunity presented itself. Look at this. The king of Sodom, after Abraham put together his own army of armed men and went and rescued Lot and the people of Sodom, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, take the goods to thyself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lift up my hand to the Lord, the high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. I will not take from a thread to a shoe latchet. I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I've made Abram rich. You see, a taker tends to take anything they can whether God wants them to have it or not. It doesn't matter. And uh, so you can be poor. Listen to the statement. You can be poor and be a giver or a taker. You can be rich and be a giver or a taker. It doesn't have anything to do with finances. Listen to this article from several years ago. Reports show that teenagers... Um, who volunteer even once a week. This is just in the population as a whole. Teenagers who volunteer even once a week to do anything are 50% less likely to abuse drugs, alcohol, or cigarettes or to engage in destructive or risky behavior. They're also more likely to do well in school and grow in devoting citizens. Why? Because if you're a giver, you're just going to be more successful in life. I never will forget the first time that God taught me this principle. The picture on the screen is from 1984 or 1985. It's my, my wife is actually taking the picture. That is my mother. My dad is laying in the hospital bed in right outside Asheville, North Carolina. I had been preaching at a camp in Iowa, and I got the call, your daddy's had a heart attack, and if you want to see him alive, you better get here. And we took off right away to make the trip to Asheville, North Carolina. Now, this was the day before credit cards would take you almost anywhere. In fact, Lots of motels, lots of gas stations then did not take credit cards. I remember we didn't have hardly any money at all and <clears throat> we headed to Asheville, North Carolina. I remember going to a bank itself and borrowing money on a credit card just to be able to survive while we were there. Our finances were really, really tight. My mother, I think their picture is here. My mother and my grandmother had driven 
to Asheville, North Carolina. They were both there. They're both in heaven now. My dad's been in heaven since 1988. And they were both there, and we all went out to eat. We finished eating. We headed to pay our bill. And the Holy Spirit said to me, are you going to pay your mother and your grandmother's bill or not? And it was like, what? Where'd that come from? And I had this little argument with the Holy Spirit. Did you ever argue with God? I said, uh, God, they're in better shape financially than we are. We can't even pay our bills. We didn't have the money to get here. We don't have the money to stay here. We don't have the money to get back home. When we get home, we're going to be having trouble paying our bills. And uh, the Holy Spirit just seemed to nudge me again and said, are you going to pay your mother and your grandmother's meal or not? And I argued a little bit more. And finally, I walked over to my mother and my grandmother. I said, here, give me those. And they said, what? I said, just give me those, give me those. And I walked up there and I paid their bill. And you know, I didn't even understand what I was doing until later. But I found out later that what I was doing was giving honor to my mother and my grandmother. It wasn't the meal. It wasn't the money. It was the honor that I was giving to them. The fellow on the left-hand side of the screen is Mike Peters. At this point in time, he was a teenager in our church, did not have a dad at home. I used to take him out to eat all the time. I'd spend time with him, fellowship with him. Mike now has graduated from college and is a missionary on deputation, headed to Spain. He's raised over half of his support. He's a good guy. He's going to do a good job. He's married. He's got a couple of little children now. I had gone to Smite Camp down in Louisiana and Mike was off at Bible College and I walked into Smite Camp during the summertime and there was Mike. And I walked over and grabbed him, hugged him and said, Mike, what in the world are you doing here, man? He looked at me and he told me that the college had him come set up a booth there. I said, man, it is so good to see you. He looked at me and he said, hey, Brother Davis, he said, um, I want to take you out to eat while we're here. I looked back at him and I said, no, 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 Mike. You not get it, man. Uh, <clears throat> me established preacher, you Bible college student. I said, I'm not wealthy, but I've got a little bit of money and you have trouble paying your bills. I'll take you out to eat while we're here. He looked at me and he said, Brother Davis, I heard you say something in one of your sermons one time. Don't you hate it when they pull your preaching on you? I said, what is it, Mike? He said, I heard you say one time that you would always pay for the meals if you possibly could when you went out to eat until you get old and decrepit and can't do it anymore and then other people could pay. I said, so? He said, it's time. And I let him take me out to eat and we had a wonderful time fellowshipping and um, it has nothing to do with who has the most money. 
That is a picture of my mother and I when mother was 80 years of age. I was talking to my wife one day and I said, Honey, we got, Daddy's already gone to heaven. I said, We've got to give my mother a reason to live. I said, Can we do this? And so we did. I, I called up my mother. I was actually at that time talking to her almost every day on the phone, just call her and talk. She's my mama, just love her, honor her, honor my dads who are already in heaven by taking care of my mama. And so I said to her mother, I've talked to Ray Jean, and for your 80th birthday, we're gonna take, I'm gonna take you anywhere in the world you wanna go. Her next thing out of her mouth was, well, son, I can't afford that. There's no way. I said, mother, you don't get it. She could have afforded it, but that didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> I said, no, mother, that's not it. I've already talked to Ray Jean. This doesn't cost you anything. I just love you and want to do something for you. And so you choose anywhere you want to go. I pay all the expenses, take you there, bring you back home, show you around. Where do you want to go? And finally she decided, I have never been to the Statue of Liberty. On our, her 80th birthday, we lined up uh, on the dock there to go over to Ellis Island for the Statue of Liberty and they came around, they saw my mother was in a wheelchair. I had actually flown to South Carolina. My sister picked us up. The next day, my mother and I flew to New York. We rode around. The Twin Towers were still in existence. This was three months before they fell. And uh, we rode around New York, and we saw the towers and all those different things. Spent the night next morning. We were at the dock, and my mother's in a wheelchair, and they bring us all the way around. I got to the front of the line, and I told everybody in line, I said, this is my mother. She's 80 years old today. Y'all wish her happy birthday. Everybody starts singing and clapping. She said, what you doing? I said, it's your birthday. A little while later, we got up to the... Uh, top of the pedestal which is what is 150 feet high or something like that and I handed her my cell phone she called my sister she started crying and she said I can't believe I'm up here I'm looking across I can see those big towers I can see the Empire State Building I'm so thrilled I've never been to the I've never been to the uh, to the Statue of Liberty before and and uh, we got on the plane that afternoon and we're flying back to South Carolina and as we got on the plane, I'm steadying my mother. She could walk a little bit. I'm steadying her, and I said, Now, Mother, I won't, uh, you be careful here. And then I turned to the stewardess, and I said, This is my mother. Her name is Frances Davis, and she is 80 years old today. Would you tell the captain... And tell him to wish her happy birthday if he would. I'd been on a plane before where they did that. I thought they might get off on that again. So um, a little while later, we're an hour into the flight flying along. Captain comes on. He announces what the altitude is and what the speed is, all that stuff, you know. And then he interrupts and he says, And we're honored to have a very special guest on board today. Francis Davis is 80 years old today. Y'all wish her happy birthday. And I'm sitting there and I go like this. And the whole plane starts clapping and clapping. And she looks at me and she said, how did they know that? 
And I said, somebody must have told them or something. Who knows? We got back from that trip and I said to my mother, I talked to my wife again and I said, now mother, for your 85th birthday, I'm trying to give my mother a reason to live. All right? The Bible talks about being givers and the Bible talks about showing honor to your parents. Any way you can show honor to your parents, young people, learn it now. Learn it in your youth. Anything you can do to give honor to your parents, you do that now. God will bless you and lengthen your life. I said to my mother, my mother, for your 85th birthday, we're going to go anywhere in the world you want to go. She said, oh, I can't afford that. I, no, no, mother, mother. Did that last trip cost you a dime? Well, no. I said, doesn't have anything to do with money. We're going to pay for it. Where do you want to go? She said, well, I'll think about it. Well, we had five years. But every time I, you know, every, every week or two I'd talk to her, I'd say, you thinking about where you want to go? Yeah, I'm thinking about where I want to go. Then I was in Arkansas speaking at a camp. And um, Eagle Mountain Training Center there, a young, group of young men there, and I told, I preached this same message, told this same story, and somebody, a young man, Joe Norville, came up to me, probably wouldn't like it if I gave his name, but he's a godly fella, a real blessed friend. He was single at the time. He worked there at the camp, didn't really have hardly any income, and didn't really have hardly any expenses for that matter, you know, but... Um, came up to me after that service, handed me a business envelope and said this, don't wait till your mother's 85. Take her as soon as you can. Here. I went back to the room. This was, when was this, Regine? 2004, I think. I believe it's 2004. And there was eight $100 bills in that envelope. That's more like $1,200, $1,400 now in our day. I called up my mama. I said, Mother, guess what? Where do you want to go? Make a long story short, she said, I want to go to an island off the coast of California. I didn't even know there was an island off the coast of California. I've been to California. I've been more times, honestly, than I care to go. But um, <clears throat> I didn't even know there was an island. Anybody know what the island is off the coast of California? It's Catalina. Maybe there's another one there. But, but anyway, Catalina is right off of Long Beach, California. You can, and, and so my good friend, Wynn Pachardo, who was in the church out there, met us at the airport and helped me with the luggage and helped me with the, uh, uh, my mother's wheelchair and all of that, helped us get over to the dock. And um, my mother said, I have never put my, oh, there we were getting on the plane. We got a picture of my mother with the pilot. I forgot I'd thrown that in here. And there we are on the island of Catalina. And my mother said, I have never put my feet in the Pacific Ocean. I want to put my feet in the Pacific Ocean for one time. And we did. And we got back from that trip. And I said, now, mother, you're still not 85. Still got two years, year and a half or so. Where do you want to go for your 85th birthday? And for her 85th birthday, she had never been to Mexico and wanted to go to Mexico. And I had it set up with a missionary to take her to Mexico. 
And right before I was ready to book the flights, just six or eight weeks before we would have made the trip, my sister called me from South Carolina and she said, Brother, you better get down here. Mother fell. She went out to a restaurant after church tonight and she missed the seat and fell and broke her hip. And I drove to South Carolina, I thought, for a hip surgery. I didn't know that I was going there for the last three weeks of my mother's life. And you know what? My wife and I have never regretted a dime we spent on my mother. If I had to do over again, what would you do? That and more. My mother lived one and a half weeks after this picture was made. It was the only time she ever got to see that little granddaughter right there on the screen. Sometime you know what you ought to do? You ought to do something for somebody who can't pay you back. Do you ever think of the verse in Ephesians where it says, let him that stole steal no more, but let him work with his own hands, and it doesn't stop there. That he may be able, I'm paraphrasing here, that he may be able to give. You see, if he doesn't work and give, and he's been a taker, he will, he will not revert from being a taker to a giver until he starts working with his own hands and giving. That's the way you get victory over this taking business. Anybody recognize that picture? That's the story of the ten lepers. Some of the children here tell me, Jesus healed how many of those ten lepers? How many? All of them. Tell me how many came back to thank Jesus for it? Just one. Did you ever ask yourself this question? How is it possible that you could be healed of a disease that was a death sentence and not come back and say thank you for it? And you know, I didn't understand it until I preached this sermon, and I think I understand it now. You know why? Because lepers, by virtue of the fact that they had leprosy, were takers instead of givers. They sat by the roadside begging and crying, unclean, alms for the lepers, unclean, alms for the lepers, unclean, alms. And they were takers. It takes a giver to be grateful. Takers aren't generally very grateful for anything. You hand them stuff and then the next day they wonder, why are you not handing to me now? We've got a problem with this in the United States of America. It's that one factor as much as anything is what is destroying our economy. That's it. It's the taker thing and you give to the takers so that you buy their votes. And takers are seldom truly happy and seldom truly grateful. You study the parable about the laborers. They weren't grateful at all. And you see Satan who said, bow down, worship me, and all shall be thine. 
listen to this little story. Somebody wrote an advice columnist and said, the holidays are fast approaching. I'm hoping you can help me with a family problem. For the past seven years, my husband and I have hosted Christmas dinner at our home. We always invite my widowed mother, my siblings, and their families. The problem is this. For the past three years, my sister has asked if her widowed mother-in-law can be included. The woman has no other relatives, would otherwise be spending the evening alone. I was happy to do this and told her, the more the merrier. My mother, however, feels differently. She pouts and complains about somebody else's mother sharing our family Christmas. Her sour face and obvious discomfort spoil the evening for everybody. I don't want to stop hosting these dinners because I love having the family at my home and they enjoy coming. How can I get my mother to lighten up? And you know what the advice columnist wrote back was really good? There is no way you can sweeten up that sour, bitter old woman. Don't waste your time trying. Invite whomever you please. It's your home, your party. Let your mother stew in her own juices. Pretty strong. Yeah. Now, a giver's perspective is this. I have so much. What do others have? What do others need that I can give? The taker's perspective is what do I not have that I can get my hands on? And somebody described the difference between takers and givers like this. Takers sometimes eat better. Givers always sleep better. Remember I said givers care for others. Takers have to be taken care of by others. Train children to be givers instead of takers. Takers are seldom truly happy, seldom truly grateful. And takers, read it with me, would you please? Takers have a focus that is an unbiblical life focus that perverts their thinking processes into a way of thinking that is honestly very dangerous. Their perspective is skewed. Read it, please. It is not a man's position that determines his happiness. It is not a man's possessions that determines his happiness. Your perspective determines your happiness. If you have a lot or you have a little, but you are grateful and you are contented, then you are a happy person. That's just the way it is. I read a fictitious story about some hillbillies who were given $45 million for an oil-rich swamp. Then the hillbilly father was asked if he would move to the city now that he was rich. And this hillbilly father, who had never been out of the hills, asked his cousin what she thought. Well, she replied, a tone of wonder in her voice. How can you even ask? Look around you. You're eight miles from your nearest neighbor. You're overrun with skunks and possums. You use kerosene for light. You cook on a wood stove summer and winter. You wash them with homemade lye soap. Your bathroom is 50 foot from the house. And you ask, should you move? And the hillbilly father, his face lightened up and he said, I reckon you're right. A man would be some kind of fool to leave all this, wouldn't he? You can, have the, you can have the world at your feet, so much money in the bank you can't spend it and still not be happy. You remember Haman, the villain of the book of Esther, who was the most powerful, wealthiest man in the world of his day, and he said, but none of it avails me anything because Mordecai won't bow down and worship me. And Esther eventually pointed him out and he wound up hanging by the gallows that he made for the man who would not bow down before him. Think about it. You remember the prodigal son? What did he say? 
give me. It was the indication, I'm a taker. It was the problem right away. And away he goes into the far country. What happens to takers like that? Where do they wind up? In the hog pen. I heard about a man whose parents were wealthy. Had $7 million. He hired a hitman to kill his father, mother, sister so he could have it all. He's spending the rest of his life in prison. And there was my good friend, Warren Brown, writing me this unbelievable letter. He's robbed five banks. He said, I've resolved to study my behavior, attempting to discover the root cause, sever any possible reason to behave in such a way ever again. About two years ago, something happened in my mind. I began to think deceptive thoughts, thoughts like, how could I help others and serve God all these years, have nothing to show for it? I'd look at my life, see no, no material rewards. I felt like I was a failure. Like a dark cloud, these thoughts would come to me, shocking me. I would rationalize I deserve more. I started taking out personal loans to invest in get-rich-quick schemes. I thought I could make money as a day trader, especially on penny stocks. My debt grew out of control. The actions led to a sense of desperation. Bill collectors asking for payments, cut off notices, threats of legal action. I remember telling the bill collector I would do whatever it took to pay. The distorted thinking led to impulsive, reckless behavior. I did pay the bill collector, but the price was not worth the consequences. I wish every day I could go back in time to that confused, anxious young pastor and tell him to stop thinking those foolish thoughts. I wish I could shout at him and reason with him to wake up from his stupidity. What a fool I was. I take full responsibility for allowing myself to believe these lies. I do not pity myself. I am not sorry I got caught. I I am sorry for the grief and loss that I caused others. When uh, even though I never used a weapon nor did I threaten with violence, I lived with remorse and sadness for the trauma I caused the bank employees. Did you know that most bank employees who are robbed lose their jobs? Do you know that? Study it. Do you know why? They can't survive it anymore. Every person walks in the door their heart races again. They think it's a robber. And they, they lose their jobs. See, so he says, I'm sorry for the trauma I caused them. I daily live with the devastation, distress, loss, and shame I brought upon my family. I'm full of mourning for the blasphemy I have brought toward my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thankfully, I was found out. God in his mercy allowed the FBI to catch me. I take full responsibility for my actions. I promise to never again involve myself in any way with criminal behavior. I purpose to keep my mind on what is true and do what is right. I dedicate the rest of my life to the service of others. I desire with all my heart to be a giver in my community and not a taker. So help me God. I read that letter. I took it home, showed it to my wife and I sat down and wrote a check to his wife and dropped it in the mail. I thought, you know what? If they're already having financial problems, it's going to even be even worse now. So I wrote her a check. A few weeks later, I wrote her another check. I talked to him. I said, brother, don't play games with the court. Walk into the judge. Walk in before the judge and tell the judge what you did and say that you deserve anything, including the rest of your life in prison. You'll come out better. He did. He could have wound up easily with a 10 to 20 year sentence. He was given 51 months in federal penitentiary. He's been out now for several years. He tells his story as well. There's more I could tell you about the story, but I won't take time to do it. 
Do you see what he said? He said, I will no longer be a taker. It's dangerous to you to be a taker. Get off. If there's somebody here tonight, you're a taker, get off the road of being a taker. It'll damage your marriage. It'll damage your family. It'll damage your life. It'll damage your future. Decide I'm going to be a giver in every area of my life. I want to be a giver. Jesus was the ultimate giver who gave his life. The only way you and I can go to heaven is to trust what he did on the cross of Calvary. Have you done that? Would you bow with me, please?